This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Bookshelf, your weekly program of new fiction. I'm Cassie McCullough and for the last three episodes, I have been here with Jonathan Green. But now, Kate Evans is back. <laughs> and it's very good to be back too, Cassie. Although, of course, I did listen to your shows and I added the books you discussed to my own book pile because what a fantastic <laughs> selection you had. We did actually speak about some great books indeed. Now, uh, Kate, you have your arm in a sling. You've had a minor op. I don't know how you've even been reading anything. Well, I didn't read much for the first week or so after it, but now I've struggled through with a uh, homemade book weight to keep things open. But what I thought I'd do, I would Cassie, love to see that. <laughs> I think you've got to you've got to put that on, you know. Piles of 20 cent pieces, some gaffer tape and a bit of felt worked for me. It's not very glamorous. But I decided to read something that we don't have time to read here on the bookshelf, and that's memoir, starting with Hilary Mantel's Giving Up the Ghost and then the Australian book A Kind of Magic by Anna Spigo Ryan, which is a memoir of sort of mental health, which is really tough and confronting and, and quite real. It's very moving. Heather Rose, the Tasmanian novelist, has a memoir out next month, Nothing Bad Ever Happens Here. But also I read a memoir called Childhood by Shannon Burns that is really powerful. It's all about poverty and disadvantage growing up in Adelaide. Really a quite extraordinary piece of writing. And he's going to join us next time on The Bookshelf, Cassie, as a guest. Um, you mentioned Hilary Mantel and, of course, uh, she died while you were away and I was thinking of you because I know you're such a massive fan, but I also listened to your conversation with her, which was excellent. And you can hear how much she loved talking to you because uh, it's just obvious in her replies. So if you haven't listened to that yet, do check out Kate's conversation with the late, great Hilary Mantel, the author of the Wolf Hall trilogy. And can I say, Cassie, that's one of my career highlights. Having the chance to talk to her for an hour was really quite something. Yeah, well, it's a standout. But let's talk about what we're reading today, Kate. We've got three American books, including John Irving. Remember him, The World According to Garp, The Cider House Rules. Uh, he's written an enormous book called The Last Chairlift. And the novelist Felicity McLean is going to read that one for us. But, you know, Irving is also a writer who said many times that he became a novelist by reading Charles Dickens. And as it happens, we're reading another book today that explicitly references the works of Charles Dickens. Yes, and that's by another very famous US writer, Barbara Kingsolver. The new one's called Demon Copperhead, and it's a reference to David Copperfield. Yes, and so we brought along a Dickens scholar to help us make sense of that one, David Ellison from Griffith University. Okay, but before they join us, let's talk about the latest from George Saunders. Now, George Saunders won the Man Booker Prize in 2017 for his novel, Lincoln in the Bardo. The Booker Prize. Cassie, we haven't even mentioned that just a oh, few yes. days ago mm. the uh, Booker Prize was announced and it was won by the Sri Lankan writer Shahan Karanatalaka for his book, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida. 
And do you remember just a few months ago, Samrithi Daniel came on the show to yes. talk to us about Sri Lankan literature mm. and he was the very first writer that she mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> she picked it. She picked it. Good on you, Samrithi. <laughs> and also there's a really great interview by Sarah Lestrange with Shahan that is available through the ABC Listen app um, mm. on the book show. Okay, okay, enough cross-promotion. Let's get on <laughs> with it. George Saunders is waiting for us. Well, George Saunders so far has only written one novel and that is Lincoln in the Bardo, but he's really made this name for himself as a writer of short fiction. He's written eight books of short fiction and he also teaches creative writing at Syracuse University. And among other things, he's written a study of Russian short fiction called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, and that just came out last year. But the collection that we've both read contains nine short stories and it's called Liberation Day. And Cassie, last week, or on the last edition of The Bookshelf, I heard you and Jonathan Green talking about short fiction, how important it is, and I think you both said you wanted to read more contemporary short fiction. Mm, yeah, I'm a big fan of it. I love it. It's particularly hard to write and don't think many people understand that. You know, it's much easier to write long. You really have to know what you're doing when you write short. And also I love the architecture of a short story collection, which to me is like a concept album. You know, all the pieces are different but somehow connected rather like a mobile that has lots of moving parts. And I have to confess that for that reason, I always read short story collections in order because I figure that there is a reason that the writer has put them like that. And you don't put it on shuffle. No, I don't like to put it on shuffle. And so the, the titular story, which is the first story in this collection called Liberation Day. Ah, but are they all not about liberation <laughs> in some way? We'll get to that. Yes, a good point. But this first one is about 60 pages long. And one of the things I liked about it is that you're actually not sure what's going on as the story opens and you're inside the the mind and the voice of a, a character who, well, he doesn't just take you into a world, he's taking you into a room and it's not clear at first who he is or what he's doing there. I mean, what did you make of how this story opened? Well, I'm glad you liked it because I really didn't find my way into this story. In fact, I gave up and thought, I'll come back to this. I read the rest, which I liked a lot more, and then I came back to this short story. It, it takes off like a Harrier jump jet with this vertical shoot up into the air. And I just for too long didn't know what I was doing, where I was and why I was reading it. Okay, whereas I quite liked that discombobulating sense and then it started to come more and more into focus. And so the person who's telling the story, the narrator, is Jeremy. And Jeremy and two other people, well, or are they people? You're not quite sure at first. These characters are sort of suspended in the air in a house and it turns out they're sort of indentured servants and they think they're only four years old but they also appear to be adults and their job is to tell stories. So they're called speakers and the owners of the house plug information into them and then get them to tell stories. And so at first I thought, what, are these people slaves? Are they, um, are they some sort of automata? What are they? 
And then we realise that we're in this slightly future dystopian world in which the wealthy own the the bodies and the voices, and I guess they control the mind of other people, and they use them for entertainment. But it's not just any entertainment. The guy who owns them is fascinated by American 19th century history. (laughs) And so he gets them to perform Custer's Last Stand. So immediately, nationhood, America, liberation, as you say, liberation or slavery or ownership and the status of words are all at stake. And it builds up and builds up with a sense of dread, wondering whether there's about to be a revolution, wondering what we're going to find out about this world. And I was fascinated by it. I thought, wow, in 60 pages, you've done so much. So I didn't look away Mm. with this one, whereas you did. Mm. Yeah. And you knew that it was the big statement. You knew that it was a huge, epic American commentary. Um, But as a reader who has a million other things to do, it asked too much of me initially. Although when I came back to it, I went, ah, okay, you know, I can see how it fits in and, uh, yeah, I know it's brilliant, but I just couldn't, didn't feel it. What about with his other short stories though? Because some of them are quite short. Um, they're not all dystopias. I mean, he uses different styles for all of them. So is there a story in this collection that really grabbed you? Oh, there is. Just, there's one that, for me, I actually put the book down and, and had a little cry. <laughs> oh, which one? <laughs> well, I don't even know. Well, it's called Sparrow. I don't know. Did you like that one? Yes. I, don't I thought you were going to say A Thing at Work. Ah, okay. Yeah, A Thing at Work's interesting too. But Sparrow is just this funny little story about funny little people in suburbia and Sparrow is the nickname given to this woman who looks a little bit like a sparrow and everyone makes fun of her. And along comes a man who doesn't really think much of her until he spends a bit more time with her and he and he and he has a mother who is very loving of him but very critical of the rest of the world and so uh, the implication in the story is that he hasn't really needed to find himself a love in life because his mother provides him with so much he's he's sort of filled up but slowly he begins to see that sparrow is quite wonderful and by the end so does the mother Well, and he blossoms because of the way that Sparrow looks at him and the attention that she gives him. So there's great compassion, I think, in the way that he creates all of these characters. Yeah, and when you see him seeing her as he does, you start to see her as kind of wonderful and instead of dismissing her as silly and trifling and, you know, a little bit idiotic, you actually realise she's just lovely. And I think that's one of the things that George Saunders does really well is he starts to create a character and then he sort of shifts perspective or gives you other aspects of that character so that you start to see them in a more complex way. And I think you're right, he does it very well in this one. Mm, Yeah, I did like that story. Some of the others are similar in tone and style and I think um, a thing at work is like that. Also perhaps... Mother's Day is like that, these two ancient women with... (laughs) Well, with a shared history. Yeah. 
And the great thing about that is that the first character that you meet seems particularly bitter and all we see is her complaining about her children walking slowly along the street and the other character, the other elderly woman, seems to be much more joyful. And then as they look at each other and we get access to their memories, it becomes more and more complex because one had had an affair with the other's um, husband. And so that question of creating a character and then changing what we as a reader know or what we think we know about it um, is something that he actually spoke to Richard Feidler about. They did a, a long conversation about writing and creating characters and Richard asked him about his approach to, to characters and, and this is what he said. If I'm writing a story and I have a simple moral, a, a demonstra demonstrative moral agenda, I, I want to use this character to teach you a lesson. At some point, that story will get very boring, you know, because I've already decided that this is a bad person and we're going to stand her together and jeer at him. Uh, the story form doesn't really like that. It's because it, it sort of totally deals the, um, the reader out of the process. There, there's no doubt about the outcome. So what I find, what you find yourself doing as a writer is you have a bad character. If he's simply bad section after section, you're going to be boring. So you have to complicate him, which means you have to look closer at him, just as in real life. And for me, it happens just as a process, part of the process of revision. And it doesn't really happen, you know, in a big transformational way. It's just a little bit at a time. You start to, um, you know, chip away some of the stone and suddenly the human face is there in the sculpture in front of you. I have to confess I could listen to George Saunders talk about writing all day because he does it really interestingly. Yeah, and we'll put a link to that conversations conversation that he had. I also did like his story Ghoul, which is another one where at first you've got no idea what's going on, where you are. You seem to be in some sort of nightmarish land where people are involved in some sort of almost like Halloween panorama where they're dressed up as different characters and they are in some sort of underworld or is it the underworld mm. and what's going on. There are sort of pogroms and power shifts. And it struck me that as well as liberation, that he's very interested in inequality and poverty. And so I like a short story like that where at first I've got no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I think in tone that one ghoul was a little like love letter as well, which is a group of people who are stuck in a reality that it takes a long time for us to understand and we realise they've been held captive and it's like a, a fun, fair Disneyland style nightmare, dystopian, and uh, they're being fed misinformation until someone realises the truth. Um, it's a bit, you know, like, you know, the Stasi, the, everyone's reporting on each other, etc. And yeah, so um, similar theme, I think, to Ghoul. What do you think, um, as a collection, do you feel that these uh, were written to be together or do you think they were just sort of curated, oh, these will all work well together? I think more that these would all work together. I mean, there's not a clear set of links the way that some short story collections do a playful hint or a moment or a motif that follows through. So he's not doing that. Um, but as you said earlier, there are thematic connections rather than a sort of clear writerly mm. connection. I mean, yeah. how did it work for you? Well, I think it was like a sort of greatest hits album, a sort of k special in a way. Um, but 
there were some really great stories in there and one or two of them come close to being the definition of what a short story is. The yeah. others, I'm, I you know, could have left. Having said that, maybe it just got me on the wrong day. There are certainly a couple of stories in there which are worth it just for those. Yes, and for me, that very first story was worth the price of admission. George Saunders' Liberation Day is published by Bloomsbury. Time now on the bookshelf to meet this week's guest reviewers. Felicity McLean is with us. She's a novelist. Her books include The Van Apfel Girls Are Gone and Red. Felicity, hello. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, Felicity. Hi. Now, we'll get on to your novels in a moment, but we've just been talking about the American writer George Saunders, and I think you've been reading some of his work too. Yes, that's right. I'm reading A Swim in the Pond in the Rain at the moment. Uh, and it's terrific. It is part fiction and part non-fiction, you could say, because it's George Saunders walking the reader and the writer through a series of Russian short stories, which he unpicks and shows us the quite brilliant architecture of these short stories. Uh, And then he talks us through what is taking place as readers and writers. And it's fascinating. Well, we might bring our second guest, David Ellison, in here too, who's a literary academic. David, you're a reader of George Saunders too? I am. He's one of my favourites. What is it that you like about him? Oh, he's a completely unbridled imagination. He's a voracious reader, so he knows um, how to play among the fields of all the writing in in the Americas. And he's also very practical. And especially in that book uh, that you just mentioned, it does take the reader by the hand and does things that as an academic, I would love to do, but daren't do because it's too direct. It's too much looking at how effects are created on the page in the moment of reading. And it doesn't feel appropriately like a teaching outcome, but is so thrilling, such an exciting thing to experience as a reader. But um, we should talk more about your own work as well. And so back to you, Felicity, your latest novel, Red, you've taken the Ned Kelly story, transferred it to the New South Wales Central Coast and focused it on a teenage girl. You're going to have to explain that for us. How and why have you done that? Yeah, that's an audacious thing to do, isn't it? What a sacred cow to go messing with the Ned Kelly story. Everyone's had a go with varying uh, success. I'm thinking of uh, Mick Jagger in particular. (laughs) And Well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, there are more books and songs about Ned Kelly and his gang, allegedly, than any other historical figure. So I guess I wanted to ask why. Why is that? And in 2022, how pertinent is the Ned Kelly story to the way that we are now? So to pose that question, I guess I flipped it on its head a little and made Ned Kelly a female, uh, a feisty red-headed girl called Ruby Red McCoy. Uh, And she lives on the central coast of New South Wales uh, because I have stolen the Ned Kelly story from the Victorians uh, and placed it there because there were suburbs like Wyoming and Saratoga and it was too irresistible to me because the Ned Kelly story is nothing if not a Western. (laughs) David Ellison, although we have said 
that this is an episode of The Bookshelf focusing on American fiction, there's a very good reason to have you as a Dickens specialist in the house. But perhaps you could explain to us why 19th century literature and why Dickens in particular is so important to you. Oh, I think because I'm interested in the novel and the novel really uh, arise at the form in which we recognise and embrace it now in the Victorian era. They kind of set up the rules around realism. They, they establish the physics of it, how we inhabit um, literature. But they also are very experimental with it in ways that are a bit unfairly overshadowed by modernism, I think. Um, they play around with, with what the novel can be. Uh, Dickens fascinates me because he is someone who is quite artificial in the way that he writes. Um, I like to compare him with Eliot. Um, George Eliot is the great, let me be clear about this, the greatest novelist. Um, I'm prepared to make that small declaration. Um, Cards on the table early today. Uh, Yeah, there's there's (laughs) no one else. Uh, And and Dickens, um, you know, doesn't compare favourably with her. Once you take her out of the equation, he shines. There is something very artificial about the way he writes. His writing is, is affecting it's uh, um, sweeping, but it also plays around a lot with games. It's like games and variations. The way he characterises people uh, by making, by uh, focusing on verbal tics uh, and, and all the repetition. So once you start reading Dickens, you can read through into the Victorian era, but you can also read through into the emergence of the professional writer. You know, he kind of embraces serialisation. He embraces merch. There are so many things going on with him. So he's a kind of focal point for me. We will be returning to Dickens and both the influence of Dickens, but also the sort of explicit citations in the novels that you've both read for us. But also so many writers say that it's Dickens who made them a writer, including the two writers that we're turning to now. So Felicity, you have read John Irving's latest novel, The Last Chairlift. And David, you read Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead. And we might begin with that one. Barbara Kingsolver's novels include The Bean Trees, the most famous, I think, The Poisonwood Bible, Prodigal Summer, and also The Lacuna. She's also written poetry, essays, and non-fiction. And she grew up in a part of America called the Appalachians, which is both a mountainous area and also a place well-known for poverty and disadvantage. And it's also, she claims, an area that has long been denigrated and stereotyped. When Americans talk about hillbillies, these are the hills they mean. Mm -hmm. And this is where she set this latest one. It's called Demon Copperhead. And just in case you missed the hint in the title, the reference there to Demon Copperhead as David Copperfield, there's also an epigraph at the start of the novel. It's in vain to recall the past unless it works some influence upon the present. And that is from Charles Dickens. David, how clear is it in this novel that we are supposed to be in a Dickensian world? Oh, it's very clear. Aside from the title, there are echoes on every page of the novel. Um, In fact, my copy of it has lots of instances of me writing the word echo and then smiley faces and then grumpy faces. (laughs) It kind of (laughs) went on and on and on and on. Well, the first line. Well, the the first line, well, the title. I mean, the first line, the title, um, the names of the characters, there are moments in which she quotes directly from David Copperfield. So it's as if this book had kind of swallowed the earlier version of the book and is kind of digesting it sometimes successfully and sometimes not so successfully. But, yeah, no, it's all over the place. And that first line is this character... 
Damon Copperhead, Demon. even though Demon. he's referred to as Demon. But I think yeah. he was his name is Damon. Yes, apologies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're quite right. The first line in the King Solver book is "First, I got myself born," mm. and Chapter One of Charles Dickens' David Copperfield is "I am born," mm. and then it goes on. So our hero in the King Solver book, he's born in a trailer. He's got a really young mother who's addicted to pills and he really only survives that birth because of a neighbour called Nance Peggett. But I think with this setup, we're in a, a world of poverty and a world of people living on the outside of society, which is another meaning, I guess, we have to the word Dickensian. So how well does she evoke that sort of American poverty? Um, she, she evokes it very well. Uh, it's not particularly Dickensian in that, it, in that Dickens's version of poverty is almost always urban poverty. Uh, he's fascinated by, by, I mean, deeply fascinated by the architecture of poverty, by the textures of it, by the sensation of it. Um, he used to wander around at night through Seven Dials and places of, of immense uh, deprivation to get writing ideas. Whereas this is very rural, very regional, um, and in many respects a kind of pastoral novel. It's, it's a very anti-urban novel. So in that sense she's holding what we might think of as the kind of conventional Dickens, Dickensian evocation of, of poverty at bay. She's insisting on something else. And in fact I think the novel is at its most interesting when it insists on what is distinctive about the world that she's evoking rather than this kind of slightly strained responsibility or obligation she has to, to Dickens. That's interesting, though. Why don't we actually hear what she herself says about that relationship to Dickens? So Claire Nichols on our sister program, The Book Show, has interviewed her and the whole interview will be heard in the next edition of The Book Show. But Claire Nichols asked Barbara Kingsolver about what Dickens meant to her and this is how she responded. I learned to be a writer by being a reader. I didn't go the conventional route. I didn't study writing or even literature in college. I studied uh, biology. I was going to be a scientist. That's all to say that I, I learned my craft from reading and I have always relied heavily on the great plotters and, and Dickens is, is the best. I mean, you just can't, you can't beat Dickens for a good plot. And I grew up not, I mean, I was luckier than, than Charles Dickens. Uh, my father did not go to debtor's prison, but I grew up among very poor people. Appalachia is the poorest part of this country. And it's for 200 years, it's really been treated as a colony of the United States. It's been exploited economically and it's schools have been kept deliberately substandard and it's, uh, its people have been kept deliberately poor by the, the series of outside agencies that came in to pull out the coal, the timber, the tobacco, all the resources. So um, as I, you know, when you grow up, you just think your world is the world. But as I got older and understood more about history and economics and, and sort of this deliberate institutional poverty, I began to understand that, you know, I, I grew up in a kind of Dickensian world. There's an awful lot in that that we can talk about, David, but perhaps we should pause first on her statement that Charles Dickens was one of the great plotters. Except for George Eliot, of course. <laughs> and remind people what's essential to the plot of David Copperfield. So it's a Buildings Roman, it's a coming-of-age novel. 
um, told in the first person about a, a child who's just kind of on the outer edges of uh, middle-class respectability, but who, through various misadventures, is constantly under-recognised or misrecognised, whose potential is not acknowledged and, and has all kinds of terrible things happen to him as a result. Um, it's a search for family and uh, a recognition that family is often disappointing and that what you need in order to provide something like a family is a series of surrogates. And so he travels around England, ending up in London, and ultimately finds some kind of surrogate family and develops into a, a sort of writer. And this novel by Barbara Kingsolver reflects that or sort of mirrors that in a way. But why don't we talk a bit more about our hero, his was christened Damon, but he's known as Demon. But that second name, Copperhead, is interesting because a copperhead is a type of poisonous snake, but it also is apparently the surname of his missing father, who I found quite an interesting character, not that we really knew much about him, because he was described as a Melungeon, and the Melungeon people of the Appalachians were descended from Native Americans, Europeans, and Black Americans, so almost like the Métis people of Canada. So he is doubly at the side of this society. But as you say, David, the story of David Copperfield is one of finding surrogate families and then being put through just terrible thing after terrible thing. But who are the good people who help him? Uh, the good people are teachers nurses, people of, of good conscience and often quite explicit politics. And, and they are there to save uh, Demon, who at, at various points has, has hit rock bottom, whether it's through the violence of others or through addiction. Uh, all, all kinds of terrible things happen to him. But there are, there are these people he falls back on and, and who ultimately uh, bring him home. Mm, addiction. What time frame? You might have already covered this, but what time frame are we talking about? So it starts in the late 90s and moves into the uh, to the 2000s. So it converges on uh, the Oxycontin catastrophe that, that strikes the Appalachians. And that, to me, is actually the most interesting part of the novel, not least of which because it the effects of Oxycontin and the description of the ravages of that kind of abuse um, derails... King Solver's indebtedness to Dickens. Dickens has nothing to say on this front. So it becomes almost, I, I feel, a different kind of novel, one which is moving and shocking and frightening. And we see the impact of those drugs from the very first page. I mm. mean, he's born to this young woman in the trailer and she is already an addict. And he is then saved by the neighbours who are called what? The Piggots. The Piggots. Explain why we're both raising our eyebrow at that. Yes, my, my eyebrows don't go high enough for this. Um, the Peggots are um, a reference to Peggotty, who is the maid, servant, confidant uh, and, and stand-in mother at various points in David Copperfield, one of the most important figures for David and, and really um, one of his most potent protectors uh, from the world outside. And that's a sign, I think that's a, a good indicator of the level of in which Dickens intrudes into this novel through these kinds of linguistic echoes, some more successful than others. Some of them are just name checks. Some of them are, are kind of plot reverberations. And, and as I said, not all of them are wholly successful. And is there also not a bit of Nancy Sykes in there too with, with Nance? 
Uh, yes, I, I think, and in fact, from, uh, she, from she embraces. She yes, from Oliver Twist. Um, there's a bit of Bleak House. There's even weirdly a bit of Dickens' actual history in, in that he set up something called Urania Cottage, which was a, a home for quote unquote ruined women, um, who and they were to be cured by excessive domesticity, and then ultimately marrying them off. And that's a little bit like what Betsy. Woodhull has going uh, in her place, which is to bring in drug-affected women and then eventually marry them into respectability. Mm-hmm. But if we can just get back to the way in which King Solver uses the names, mm. this is something that anybody who's read or even is slightly familiar with Charles Dickens will be aware of as you read this novel. And so again, Claire Nichols asked Barbara Kingsolver to to spell out how she was able to transform these 19th century names into the late 20th century America? Well, it really helped a lot that that in this region, everybody goes by a, a nickname. Well, males. It's so common for boys and men to pick up nicknames and they're never flattering. You know, stubby, shorty, pork chop, uh, you know, just it's just a thing of this culture. And I suppose other cultures might have it too, especially rural cultures, but people pick up nicknames. So that helped me in uh, writing this book that the names are reflections, you know, of, of Dickens's names. So, you know, Demon Copperhead obviously is David Copperfield. Steerforth becomes Fast Forward. That's his nickname. He's an athlete, you know, people call him Fast Forward. Then I came one that was a real puzzler, uh, Uriah Heap. If you've read David Copperfield, you know that Uriah Heap plays a really important role. He's a sinister character, and as he is in in my book. And so I've really puzzled all over that one. Well, Heap, you know, I, I pictured a heap of things is a pile of things, and piles or pile is a common last name here. So I thought his last name will be pile. So what's Uriah Heap's first name going to be? And I I came up with U-Haul. U-Haul, if you missed that one. Um, She had fun, didn't she? Did she have fun? You reckon she had fun with this? She did have fun. It wasn't always shared by the reader. Uh, She... (laughs) Uh, look, that that one made me especially cross because um, Uriah Heep is is one of the most extraordinarily potent and vile characters in the Dickens canon, and arguably in all of literature. He's you know the sort of damp, malign presence, Humble absolutely uncanny, am. absolutely uncanny figure. And and, um, and then and you're Kingsol- taking in Fagin there, who's not a, you know, yes, a really yes, nice guy at all. Yeah. So that's really saying something. Yeah, yeah. Whereas U Heep is a kind of low wattage, slender man. I didn't I didn't find him as as interesting. Uh, as, and, and that was really the problem all along. I mean, Macorba becomes Macob, uh, and and in those in those translations, some of what was vivid about the characters, and and this is really I think a, a problem for Kingsolver because we can't write the way that Dickens writes anymore. So the name checking has to stand in for the, the the greater evocation, but you lose a lot in the in the translation. Can I, I just say one thing? And this is this is something that troubled me. Um, after reading this, I thought about the great literary critic uh, Rita Felsky, who has observed that the books that tend to receive the most attention academically are difficult books. And 
this is not a difficult book. And it, it worries me that, that what I didn't like about it is that it was all too easy. Um, and that maybe if I'd kind of, you know, weren't, if I'd winkled out that David Copperfield was at the heart of this, I might have appreciated it more. So that gave me pause. That troubled me a little bit. But I, I do want to say, I think there's a lot here that, that was so interesting and so compelling, especially when it was truer to the Appalachians than that reference to Dickens, which I, I'm not sure was fully resolved. Okay, so it sounds like it is a little unsatisfying, this book. It's called Demon Copperhead and it is by Barbara Kingsolver. This is RN's Bookshelf with me, Cassie McCullough. Kate Evans is here and our guests today, Victorian literary specialist David Ellison and also novelist Felicity McLean. And now we're turning to another piece of American fiction. It's by John Irving, who, of course, was the guy behind Hotel New Hampshire, The Cider House, Rules, The World According to Garp, a huge figure in, well, I guess, 80s and 90s literature. But I believe we haven't left Charles Dickens behind entirely, Kate. No, this Irving is a writer who said many times that at the age of 15, it was reading Dickens' great expectations that made him a novelist. And I have to say that that book, and in particular a an annotated version of it, does appear in his latest novel, which is called The Last Chairlift. Now, it's his 15th novel, Cassie. It's also unbelievably enormous. I can't believe that you read this, Kate, with only one hand, given you've got one arm in a sling. I don't even know how you did it. And Felicity, I hope you haven't got a day job, because how on earth did you get through this book? Yeah, it's not short. Uh, It's 900 pages long and it is weighty. It's huge. It did make me think, you know how in detective novels, sometimes they like chisel out sections of books on a bookshelf (laughs) to hide something inside. You could hide a small child inside this novel. It's huge. It really, really is a doorstopper. But the other thing that's hidden inside this novel is all of John Irving's other novels, because he is a writer who likes to write about sex and sexual identity. He's strongly opposed to intolerance, especially about bodily matters. But there's a few other quirks. He writes about wrestling, about bears, Bears, about Austria, about hotels, single mothers, boys on their own, a whole lot of motifs that come up in every single book. So I have to ask you both, Cassie and David. David, have you read other John Irving novels? Uh, The World According to Garp and Cider House Rules, both about a thousand years ago. (laughs) And also probably about a thousand pages too. Mm. And Cassie, you've been a reader of John Irving? Yeah, of course. And I I loved The World According to Garp. I really did. And, you know, The Great Undertoad, um, which was the misunderstanding of the child of an undertow at the ocean, um, being afraid of the undertow to the misunderstanding. I've loved that all my life, just the little details like that. But yes, lots of bears. Well, and I loved his work as well, especially the Hotel New Hampshire. And I read about the first seven and then I got a bit sick of hearing about wrestlers and bears and happy prostitutes. But Felicity McLean, had you read any John Irving before this? I hadn't. Oh, uh, I may have to apologise. Uh-oh. <laughs> 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 danger, Bad review danger. warning here. His okay. other books are a little before my time, but I feel like 
this actually wasn't a bad place to start because, as you say, it's a it's bit all of there. A, it's a checklist of all the Irving tropes. They really are all there. But like Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead, this one begins with the birth of a boy without a father in evidence and with some sort of mystery. The first line in this one is, my mother named me Adam like you know who. So what do we know as the story opens about this boy and his mother? Yes, so this is the story of Adam Brewster. Uh, in 1941, I think it is, Rachel, his mother, who is a, a skiing champion, she goes off to Aspen and the Hotel Jerome, which becomes pivotal to the plot, uh, when she's 19 years old and she competes and instead of coming home with a medal, she comes home pregnant. And f- what follows is the life story of Adam over the next seven or eight decades and his unconventional family and several ghosts and it's a first person narrative describing his family over these decades. Well and what a family. So his mother Rachel, little Ray, her father never speaks again after he discovers that his daughter is pregnant. That's right and he sort of descends uh, early on in the novel and I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the grandfather dies spectacularly by lightning strike during a wedding wedding, (laughs) quite early on in the piece. Irving sort of painted himself into a corner a little bit because Adam, the protagonist, is quite, you know, he's the youngest person in this family and we follow his life. So towards the sort of latter third of the novel, Irving has to start really killing people off. He's got several generations of grandparents and aunts and uncles he needs to do it away with and he is so creative. (laughs) I mean, he's, he is funny. I mean, he's entertaining and absurd and things are over the top. And even like Little Ray's sisters are poisonous characters, but they are spectacularly awful, don't you think, Felicity? I thought that was spectacularly terrible. They are. They are hugely disapproving. Uh, and their husbands, the uncles, are sort of endlessly cheerful. They're Norwegian skiers. Everyone in this book is a skier. And Adam makes the comment that his uncles were not the suicidal type of Norwegians that Ibsen brings to mind. It is a funny novel and the literary references are crammed in there. You know, one of the things that I was surprised to find confronting was realising how little I cared about snow sports and skiing. And there's a lot of it in here. Just because I don't know anything about it and I've never skied and we have this, you know, his mother, we're always told how good she is at skiing and then how she hates skiing and then how she spends every day doing lunges and wall squats. So you really do learn a lot about skiing and snowshoeing. You have to tell us about the snowshoer. (laughs) I can't even visualise snowshoeing. I didn't know this was a thing. Snowshoeing as opposed to skiing. And it's one of, I thought skiing and snowboarding was sort of the factions, but apparently snowshoeing is one all of its own. So Adam doesn't have a father that he knows. He doesn't know who his father is. And I thought the story was going to be a sort of quest archetype searching for his father. And that is one of the subplots, one of many, many subplots. Uh, but yes, many. He, instead of, you know, a father figure who is there for him, he early on has a stepfather, the snowshoer, the little snowshoer, much is made of his size. Mr Barlow is a teacher at Adam's school who marries Adam's mother and later changes gender and becomes Elliot. And 
I'm not quite sure where I was headed with that one. Sorry, I've distracted myself <laughs> with well, the subplot. You, um, you know, there are so many subplots, it's easy to get distracted. But one of the images I have of the snowshoer is that he was part of what his mother likes about the snowshoer is that he's small. And she was looking for a man who was small enough for her. And when we meet him early on, he has just a little tiny car, but he's so short that he can't quite reach it. So it, you imagine him like squatting like a, a jockey with his bum hovering above the car seat and holding on desperately hard to the wheel as he drives around. I don't think it's a spoiler to give this away. There is something else that happens at that wedding. I mean, there's the grandfather being struck by lightning. But there's something else. <laughs> oh, there's something else that we discover about little Ray. What do we discover? Yes, yeah, so it's at the wedding that we discover that little Ray, Rachel, is also in a relationship with Molly. So she's getting married to Mr Barlow at the time, but she is very much in love with Molly, who is her bridesmaid at the wedding. And this is where Adam discovers his mother's other relationships, sorry, single relationship, relationship with Molly. She also works in the ski fields and she is very large. So much is made of size. Everybody is described as very small, except Molly, who's very large. It's a big thing for Irving, people's size in this novel. And smallness seems to be celebrated. I did see one, I think it was the Sunday Times said, this book is an epic saga of strange sex and small men. And that is a really good summary of where Irving is headed yeah, with this. And not such a good advertising line. I mean, he's interested in sex. He's interested in writing about lesbian sex. There is a character who has the loudest orgasms anybody can ever imagine that I think that might even stop the wedding as well. Oh, Lord. Yeah, and he does. Look, his humour is at times puerile and I'm not above Puerile humour in a book. Uh, he spends quite a long time riffing on Moby Dick and what that could possibly mean and every possible innuendo about Moby Dick that you could come up with and the hyphenated title means yeah, unhyphenated. Moby is just one in a family of many Dicks, Tom Dick, Harry Dick, Richard Dick, uh, but hyphenated, there's no Dick family and Moby is a one-of-a-kind Dick. And so it, it, he really spends quite a long time and we come back to it again and again. It, it, he really, he, he gets on a theme. Well, look, Felicity, you've done it for me, though. You've allowed me to turn back to our 19th century literature specialist, David Ellison, and say in this gargantuan book with this epic tale of all sorts of searches and secrets. What do you think it signifies that the novel Moby Dick is referred to so many times? Tell us about Melville's, Herman Melville's Moby Dick and why it matters. Uh, it, it matters because it's the great novel of the American 19th century and is a touchstone for all subsequent novels that want to be recognised as both great and American. It's the perfect novel in many respects because it is a novel about what things might mean. It's a novel obsessed with interpretation but very low on definition. You know, the sea is a mystery, the whale is a mystery, Ahab's obsession is a mystery. What we're left with is humans sifting through the signs trying to work out what things mean on this vast ocean. That is a particularly potent metaphor for a country like America. And, and if you're an American novelist, it's unavoidable. Also, I would just 
suggest that, that it is unavoidable. It's always something that, that American literature of a particular kind of pitch will always end up confronting one way or another. Felicity McLean, how satisfying was this? I mean, how did you find it as a reading experience, given you hadn't read any of his other books before? It's funny. I found it to be slightly like a soap opera. And I wonder if that, again, is the Dickens influence, so that serialisation, uh, that that mode of publication, or if that's just a byproduct of 900 pages. So you would sit down at the end of the day and dip in again and it would be, you know, what advice is Molly dishing out at the kitchen table or who's going skiing today or this sort of, you would be dipping back into people's lives and we saw their lives over such a long stretch of time and so many pages that it did have a very serial feel to it. Which ghost is going to turn up? Exactly. We didn't even touch on that, did we? The magical realism, the the sort of Gabriel Garcia Marquez ghosts that are very much part of this book and that... That keep on interrupting him when he's having sex as a teenager. Oh, please, yes. Please. There's a lot of... Well, and that's quite explicit. And his whole family talks about it, what happens. Just disaster after disaster interrupted by ghosts. <laughs> but, you know, can I say 900 pages, there's a lot of repetition in this book. There's one side character early on who wore a Tyrolean hat with a feather in it. We must have been told that five times. I was also distracted as I was reading this. You were by, editing it, weren't you? I was editing it. Yeah. I was thinking, we only need to know about that hat once. He's a side character. We never see him again. He was playing some instrument at a wedding. Why do we need to know five times about his hat? There is a lot of repetition. At a, a sentence level and thematically, I feel he treats all of his characters with a huge amount of empathy, except for one character who appears later on in the book and she's often treated with disdain and she's an editor. (laughs) (laughs) Revenge, revenge, revenge. But who got the revenge? Perhaps the editor did. It's all great, John. Let's just leave it as it is. It's print. Do you know what I found really interesting actually is so John Irving's 80 this is the first in a three-book contract he's signed. No way. True. Does he have two more 900-word novels in him? He could he's have just hoping. chopped this one up into three parts. Contract <laughs> done. <laughs> so are you still speaking to us after this, Felicity? <laughs> that is my <laughs> question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, what? yes, I very much am. I mean, I'm there are certainly to things you. to enjoy in it and I think it would be a good book to take away like on a long Christmas holiday. <laughs> or lap um, of Australia. Well, you know, if you've got time, like time to just enjoy the absurdities and the characters and it's a difficult book to read in a hurry. And I was reading it to a deadline and that did make it a little tricky. But that's not the way most people read books. No, and there is some great humour in it. Uh, The main character, Adam, has a wonderful cousin, Nora, who is part of a double act at a comedy club called Two Dykes, One Who Talks, uh, because the other half of her comedy duo only pantomimes, not just on stage but in real life, never speaks. So there, She does make some sounds, though. She does make some sounds. Look, well, you girls have damned this book with your faint praise. I think we're left with no illusions about uh, your opinions of John Irving's latest effort, which is called, thankfully, The Last Chairlift, or is it?
Well, a stellar and also mammoth effort from both you, Felicity, and you, David. Before we part company, a reading recommendation from both of you. David Ellison, would you like to recommend a book to not just us, but the nation? Well, nation, uh, <laughs> I think you would be very well served reading any of Mick Heron's Slough House novels. I've been reading those. They are the most extraordinary pleasure, not even a guilty one, just... <laughs> perfectly <laughs> acceptable, declarable pleasure. At the centre of them is a great uh, Rabelaisian character, Jackson Lamb, farting, vile, um, abusive, an equal opportunity offender, a, a, a cliche, but absolutely true in this case, and used as the basis of a scathing critique of British life, British political life. And it's just, they're just brilliant. They're great. Spy novels, I should say. That sounds fantastic. What about you, Felicity? I've just finished reading a collection of short stories by the American writer Gwen E. Kirby. Uh, the collection is called Shit, Cassandra Saw. And the opening story is about things that Cassandra saw but didn't tell the Trojans because at that point, stuff them anyway. Uh, <laughs> the stories in this collection are funny and furious and irreverent uh, in one story, a woman is told to smile more so she reveals her fangs and eats a man. Uh, there's a, a Kafka S one where a woman is bitten by radioactive cockroaches and develops superpowers. They're really experimental. Uh, there's myth and history and more contemporary ones. Uh, and there's titles like Midwestern Girl is Tired of Appearing in Your Short Stories. Oh. And they're good fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Look, thank you so much to the both of you for joining us today. Yeah, wonderful to have you both here. Thank you. Thank, thank you very you. much. Thanks. David Ellison is a literary academic from Griffith University with a special interest in the works of Charles Dickens. And Felicity McLean is a novelist whose books are The Van Apfel Girls Are Gone and her latest, Red. That's it for this week's edition of The Bookshelf. Next time, one of the books is Fiona McFarlane's The Sun Walks Down. Which I've already read, Cassie, and I think it is quite extraordinary. And also Cole Haddon's Psalms for the End of the World, rock star and bookshelf regular Tim Rogers is reading that one for us. Well, he's been to the end of the world, so he'll be well-placed to, to give us a review of that one. And one that many people have been waiting for, my goodness, Cormac McCarthy's The Passenger. And there's another book coming out a month later by Cormac McCarthy, which will tell the same story from a different character's perspective. And that one's called Stella Maris. Well, there you go. That's next time. I'm Cassie McCullough. I'm Kate Evans. See you then. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.